We're actually going to read it again uh, in a minute for the benefit particularly of those uh, online or who may listen later uh, on the podcast, but also for our benefit because uh, it's good for us to regularly and repeatedly hear the word of God and even the same word of God um, is good for us. So uh, if you don't know me, my name's Tony, I'm one of the pastors here and I'm getting, I have the privilege of opening uh, the word of God with us this morning. Uh, we're, also, you probably don't know this, but we're diving back into Matthew's gospel today, uh, starting about the second half. We worked our way through the first half at the end of 2021 into Christmas and then through to Easter 2022. And today we're coming back to it and we're going to go through to Easter this year and finish off, uh, well, mostly the rest of Matthew's Gospel. won't be covering every little point, but um, we'll be covering a lot of it. Uh, we're diving in actually at a key turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know whether you've noticed as we've been reading it together, and you'll notice now the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14 uh, record the death of John the Baptist. Jesus, uh, forerunner, and it's actually kind of a, it's there deliberately, it's kind of a precursor, if you like, pointing to what will also happen uh, to the Lord Jesus himself in time. Uh, Up until now, Matthew has been showing us that Jesus is the Christ, that he's God's promised Messiah, that he is the the new Moses, that he is the prophet that was promised long ago and who is now among us. And in actual fact, Matthew's been showing again and again and again from the very first chapter that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. From here on, what we're going to see is rising tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, ultimately culminating in his rejection and his crucifixion and, of course, his resurrection. So as we dive back into it, let's read again from chapter 14, verse 13 through to 33, and then we'll pray uh, that we might see the glory of Jesus. Matthew 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, that is, when he heard that John the Baptist had been executed, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Are you of little faith? Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Father, please now take your word by your spirit and show us your Son. Help us to see his glory this morning. And help us to know how to respond. Be at work in us by your spirit, we ask, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you know this, but one of the words that is used most often to describe the feelings of Jesus, if you like, towards people, is the word compassion. Compassion. Again and again, in the New Testament, we come across it. And it's as if the Holy Spirit wants us to know that this word, this idea of compassion, most reflects the heart of Jesus. His attitude towards people, his disposition towards us, that which most often moved him when he walked among us was this idea or this reality of compassion. We often Think about other aspects of Jesus, his greatness, his power, his glory, his might, his, his holiness, all of those things, and that's, they're all very important things for us to think about, but we don't often necessarily think about his disposition towards us in this particular way. And we know, we understand compassion because compassion moves us too, right, at, points in, at different points in time. We might see someone suffering or struggling in a, in a major way, personally or circumstantially, and we, we feel compassion for them. We hear of someone's tragic loss or, or we see uh, third, uh, children in a third world country struggling to find food and, and we feel compassion. And, and out of that compassion, we're moved often to action, Perhaps we sponsor a child with, surprise, surprise, an organisation called Compassion. And I think it's fair to say whenever you see compassion in action, it's always a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's always a beautiful thing. And when you see it in the heart of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, it's actually breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, this morning we sung together, Jesus, Strong and Kind. I'm going to reference that title quite a few times through our talk this morning. As we open God's word together, our prayers that we'll see this very thing in this passage, that Jesus is both strong and kind, that he has explosive power, but he also has deep compassion as he feeds the 5,000 and walks on the water. So let's look at both these stories. We'll just go through them and then we'll, we'll tie it up at the end. The feeding the 5,000 is, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but it's the only miracle other than the resurrection recorded in all four Gospels, which tells you two things. One, that's really important. Two, we're in danger of being over familiar with it. 
13, verse 13 to 21, there is this huge crowd of people and they're tracking Jesus down. He intends to go to a desolate place, but the crowd work out where he's going to go in this boat and they head there on foot and kind of get there before he even gets to the other side. When he uh, sees the crowds, comes ashore, we're told he has compassion on them. There's a franticness about the crowd, isn't there? There's a, there's a desperation, if you like. They want to be near Jesus. They're bringing lots of uh, sick people with them. And Jesus has compassion on them, we're told, and healed their sick. Uh, in another gospel, the Mark's gospel, when we, in this, the record of this miracle, we're told that Jesus has compassion on them seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. And the idea, of course, is that they are vulnerable. They are without protection. They are without nurture or care or provision. And Jesus has compassion on them, seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. I wonder, can you begin to see the heart of Jesus towards us, his disposition towards us? We who are vulnerable and without protection. The day comes to a close and this large crowd is obviously in need of dinner. And so the disciples, as they often do, they get practical um, and they come up with a, with a solution. They see the looming problem. And they know all about the hangry thing that people can experience. They come up with a solution. But there's only one problem. Their solution has a major problem. This is a huge crowd. Verse 21 tells us there's 5,000 men there, not to mention women and children. So, you know, you can kind of do a rough estimate. We're probably talking about 15,000 people. Um, around this area, there's only a bunch of small villages. So if they implemented the disciples' plan, uh, those villages would soon be overwhelmed immediately, unable to cope and certainly unable to provide. But not only that, Jesus has his own solution to the problem, doesn't he? Uh, verse 16, what does he say? He says to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, in other words, they have everything they need right here. They don't need to go to the villages. But then he says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Um, which is crazy, right? 5,000 men, women and children, 15,000 people possible. How on, earth is that, how on earth could that happen? Which is what the disciples say. That's like verse 17. Um, we only have five fish and two loaves of bread. You've taken us to our extremity in an instant. You give them something to eat? There's no way they can address the need. It's painfully obvious. Jesus is clearly not unaware of that, is he? What's he doing? He's actually highlighting the fact that they can't address the need in order that he might reveal his explosive power and his deep compassion among them in order that they might see firsthand in a new way, in a way like they haven't seen up until this point, that Jesus is both strong and kind. Verse 18, 
He said, bring them here. That's the loaves and the fish. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. You picture the scene? You put yourself there among the crowd. The crowds sit down on the grass. Jesus takes these five loaves, two fish, looks up to heaven, says a blessing, and then in his compassion miraculously provides for them in abundance. Notice there's plenty left. There's leftovers for the next week if you can keep it fresh. Now, here's where I want to say familiar, familiarity warning right here. If you've been around church for a while, maybe if you've grown up in a Christian home, whatever, you've read this story, you've heard this story many times and so you're in danger of just washing over you. Oh yeah, the feeding of the 5,000, yeah, I've heard that before. No, no, we should be asking the questions, some questions like this. Who does this? Who does this? And secondly, what does this mean? What does this mean? Maybe we should ask, I wonder what the disciples are thinking right now at this moment. <laughs> what are the crowds thinking? What are they saying to one another? Can you imagine the, the chatter amongst the groups? You know, they all would have sat down, not, not in rows, but probably in groups of family and wider family and so on. Can you imagine the conversation that's going on in those groups at this point in time? What the heck was that? What just happened? Now, we're not told specifically what they might be thinking or, or speaking about, but you can probably be pretty sure, given the Jewish kind of background here, of one thing they'd be talking about. I think they'd be talking about another occasion when a large crowd was fed in a desolate place. This has happened before. What just happened now is just happened, that's happened before. The great I am, Yahweh, fed his people in the wilderness with manna every day. I wonder who this is. In fact, many thought at the time that when the Messiah comes, the promised one, he would actually do something similar to the great feeding in the Old Testament when he came. So you can be pretty sure at least some of them are probably talking about that. At least some of them are saying, is this the Messiah? Is this God's promised king come to save his people? Is this the one in whom we ultimately find and encounter and experience the comfort and compassion of God himself? Is this the one in whom we find the provision of God for our every need? Is this the one who alone can save and sustain our very lives? These are some of the questions they were asking and definitely some of the questions that we want to ask. Well, then the second miracle happens. And again, we see the power and the compassion of Jesus that he is both strong and kind. From verse 40, uh, sorry, 22 onwards, the disciples 
uh, get in a boat, instructed by Jesus to go before him to the other side while he dismisses the crowds and sends them back to their homes. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. He kind of tried to get alone before, wasn't able to, uh, but now he's going to do that. While he's there on the mountain, the Sea of Galilee gets into a storm and the disciples find themselves in a bit of trouble. They're not getting anywhere. They're rowing. They're experienced guys but they're, and they're rowing like crazy but actually they've been rowing. Uh, by the time Jesus comes and walks on the water to them, it's about four in the morning. They've probably been rowing for eight to ten hours against these winds and against these waves making little progress. You can imagine how you'd feel at that point, right? At least you'd, you'd, be, you'd be shattered. Uh, you'd be discouraged. You'd potentially be becoming fearful, wondering if you're going to make it at all. But then Jesus steps onto the scene, literally, and what happens next is phenomenal. Verse 25, he comes to them walking on the sea. We say that again because of familiarity. He comes to them walking on the sea. He's just said grace and fed 15,000 people. Now, he's walking on the sea. Who does that? Who does that? Notice the disciples' reaction in verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out with fear. They're not that. They're going, who is this? They're coming to all the wrong conclusions at this point. They, they think it must be a ghost, a spirit of someone who's died already, or maybe a demon. They're gripped with fear, crying out in fear. But in verse 27, Jesus calms their fears. In his compassion, in his kindness, he speaks to them. And what does he say? Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Essentially, he is with them in this storm and he is strong, clearly, walking on the sea and he is kind. He is compassionate towards them when they're in the midst of this storm, when they're full of fear and terrified. He is kind. It's actually interesting, isn't it, that uh, right in the middle of the take heart and the do, do not be afraid is what? It is I. In fact, the, and the original language, uh, you could translate that I am, which is, if you know uh, what happened when Moses asked God who should he say will send him, who's going to be with us? You want us to what? Lead your people out of Egypt? You want us to do what? You want us to walk into the most powerful empire in the known world at that time and say, let my people go? You want, who's coming with us? And God says, I am who I am. I will be with you. Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid. Who does this? Who walks on the sea like this? What does this mean? What are the disciples thinking right now? (laughs) Well, again, we're not told specifically in Matthew what they're thinking. But Matthew himself most likely intends his readers and therefore us to think of the great reality that God is the great ruler of the seas. Psalm 107, um, we find this fleshed out quite starkly, if I can find it. Psalm 107. They, mount, they, mount, they mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away, and their, in their evil plight they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. These are the guys who have gone down into the ships. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Matthew intends us to see that Jesus is the Lord of the seas. Not only that, but in the Bible, though, the, the raging sea depicts, if you like, uh, the fallen and hostile world we live in with all its chaos and confusion. A world in which we can easily lose heart and find ourselves gripped with fear or overwhelmed with anxiety. And Jesus comes walking on the sea. He is Lord of it all. Lord over all the chaos of this world. He is sovereign over it and he is with us in it. He is sovereign over it and he is with us in it. He said this to those who followed him. And he says the same to us today, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, he is strong and kind. Now, Peter kind of puts this to the test, doesn't he, in verse 28 and following. Uh, He says to Jesus, uh, if it's you, Lord, command me to come out onto the water. And Jesus said, come, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. We're probably pretty familiar with this story. It is essentially saying to him, if you are who who I think you are, then if I look to you, I can join you in what you're doing. Jesus invites him to do so and while he keeps his eyes on Jesus, he did exactly that. He joined Jesus in what he was doing. He also walked on the sea. He did something extraordinary that can only happen through deep faith in Jesus. But then he focused on the storm and the chaos around him and he began to sink. He cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And in his grace, Jesus reached down, rescues him. Peter's faith wavered, but Jesus' compassion and grace did not. And at this point, They got into the boat and the wind ceased and it kind of concludes as it should. Verse 33, 
And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Who does this? Who feeds 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Who walks on the sea and calms the sea, showing his sovereign power over it? Who tenderly and compassionately cares for humanity? Who tenderly and compassionately cares for his disciples? Who rewards their faith and rescues them when they doubt? Who does this? Truly you are the Son of God. And he's worthy of our exaltation and praise. So, to wrap it all up, how should this land for us? What have we seen here in these two stories, in these two miraculous events that might change things for us in terms of our relationship with Jesus and our walk with Jesus? I've got three things I want us to think about just as we finish this this morning. The first is this. What we see here, when I get my clicker going, is the compassion of Jesus towards us. And I want to say we could skip over this and think, oh yeah, whatever. This idea is critical for us to see and to experience. Jesus' compassion towards us. Because it changes everything in terms of our day-to-day walk. How does God see you? What is, his, what is his, the disposition of his heart towards you, towards us as a church, as a people? You see, if we're not sure of his compassion towards us, we will struggle. There's no question we will struggle if we're not sure. I love the story in Mark's Gospel of the leper who comes to Jesus and falls down before him and begging him says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice what he says. Notice what he doesn't say. If you can, you can make me clean. He has no question in his mind about Jesus' capacity to make him clean. What he's coming and asking is, Will you have compassion on me? What's your disposition towards me? There's no question you have the power to do it. I've seen enough already to know that. But what is your heart towards me? You know what Mark goes on to say? And moved with compassion, Jesus said to him, I am willing, be clean. You see why it's so important for us? You can believe all the things about Jesus you want in terms of his capacity and his power and his glory and his might and so on. But if you don't couple that with, with a conv- being convinced of his compassion towards you, you're going to struggle. You're going to wonder. You're going to doubt. What happens when you fail? What happens when you do like Peter and you, you were trusting Jesus but the circumstances of your life are getting on top of you and you've taken your eyes off him and you feel like you're, you're sinking and you're drowning? What happens then? Is it, what's his disposition towards you? Well, You see what he did with Peter, right? Peter cried out to him and he, he reached out to him and grabbed him and said, I don't, know, I don't think in a really rebuking way. He said, oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? 
Why did you doubt my heart towards you, my disposition towards you? When, when John tells this story uh, of the feeding of the 5,000, sorry, when Mark tells the story, I've already mentioned that he talks about how Jesus saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. And we, we know in John what, what uh, Jesus himself says about the whole shepherd thing, don't we? John's, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Why did he do that? Because he's moved with compassion. Because of his deep love towards us. That's, of course, the clearest place, isn't it, where we see the compassion of Jesus when he lays down his life on the cross for us. That he might rescue us, that he might redeem us, that we might never again be like sheep without a shepherd. Never again. I wonder, have you experienced the deep compassion of King Jesus towards you? So much so you've concluded you need not pay and find whatever you need somewhere else. Everything you need is right here in Jesus himself. Because you've become completely convinced that he is strong and kind. Second thing we see here is the Presence of Jesus with us. And again, this changes everything, right? Uh, When we're potentially drowning in the chaos of this fallen and hostile world, what do we need most? What will get us through the storm we are facing? It is knowing that Jesus, who is strong and kind, is with us, that he hasn't at that point somehow left us by ourselves. But when it's the toughest, when it's the hardest, when the, the realities of this life are coming thick and fast, He's with us and we can run to him. I'm tempted when the tough times come to kind of feel like, God, where are you? But listen to what Jesus says in John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him for he dwells in you and will be with you. Jesus is now with his people by his spirit. How long for? Forever. This changes everything. We can take heart. We don't have to be afraid. It doesn't mean we won't struggle. But it does mean we can walk through those times with confidence. Even if we don't understand. Confident that he is with us. And then the last thing, just quickly, we see this morning is the rescuing grace of Jesus for us. I don't know about you, doesn't Peter encourage you? (laughs) He really does, right? Uh, I mean, he's far from perfect. He's such a mixture of bold faith and sometimes overt human weakness. Um, 
And Jesus, in his compassion, gently rebukes him and works in his life and rescues him. And we know that he's the one who denied him three times, right? And then he, then he kind of restored him uh, to ministry after that. Like, uh, he rescues him, he grows him, and he invites him to join him in what he is doing in his world. And we know the trajectory of Peter. We know what happened afterwards. Peter will live an extraordinary life. Peter! An extraordinary life, proclaiming Jesus, seeing Jesus at work, walk, walking with him, the one who is strong and kind. And again, not because he is anything particularly special, <laughs> but because of Jesus' rescuing grace and restoring grace. Doesn't that encourage you? Jesus can do the same with us. With you, if we keep looking to him, we keep trusting in him, we keep resting in him and seeking to glorify him. It's not going to be perfect, but it will glorify Jesus because he will be behind that life that we get to live in faith, trusting him. Jesus is compassionate. That's his disposition. And we know he doesn't change. Flip, flop, change. One day it's like this, one day it's another. No. That's his settled disposition towards you as you come to him through Jesus. Jesus is with you today. Right now, by his spirit, with us as his church, as we gathered in his name. With you tomorrow, back in the office or wherever it is. And his rescuing grace is sufficient to get you from here, to be fruitful in this life, and to land in his presence on the final day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark about who you are and what you're like. Thank you that as we read your word, as we look at um, what you did, we are engaging with the revelation of God. We are seeing who you are. We're seeing what you're like. We're seeing what it means to know you and to trust you and to respond to you. And Father, we ask this morning that we might yeah, settle this matter once and for all in our minds and our hearts that though we are sinners, your heart towards us is of compassion and the cross proves that. You're the good shepherd. You laid down your life for the sheep and you call us to come to you and find refuge in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are with us as your people in this life. With whatever comes our way, whether they be joys or sorrows or hardships or times of blessing and joy. Father, would we... Would we walk in that reality, we pray? 
We pray both these things so that there might be something about us that that, uh, is being shaped by these truths and provoke curiosity perhaps from friends or others who we know who don't know you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your grace lifts us up and restores us again and again. May we not take it for granted, but may we be devoted to you because of who you are and the way you have treated us. May we bring you glory. May we join you in what you're doing in your world, in advancing your gospel, in seeing people saved, in encouraging each other in the fruit of your spirit. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.